Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with RCD contributor John Waters. John, good to see you again. Hi, John. Good to be here. Today, we are speaking with Stephen B. Young, the author of a new book from Real Clear Publishing called Kissinger's Betrayal, How America Lost the Vietnam War. Stephen, welcome to Hot Wash. Good, good to be here. I, I admire what you guys do on Real Clear Defense. Thank you so much. Uh, so uh, let's just start out. I'm going to toss it to uh, John Waters in just a second, but just tell us a little bit about your connection to Vietnam. You you served in the USIA uh, while you were there. Um, kind of lay the groundwork for your experience with the country and with the events of 1968 to 73. Well, uh, uh, thank you, John. It's actually a, a, a long story and pretty unusual. My personal involvement with the Vietnam War started in the summer of 1954 when I was a kid because my father, Kenneth Young, was at the Geneva Conference for, representing the Americans trying to end the war between the French and the Viet Minh. And I was learning how to read the newspaper, came down to breakfast, and there's this big headline in the Washington Post. says, like, Indochina war over, something like that. And so I asked my mother, I said, Mom, what? there's a war going on? And she said, oh, yes, it's been going on for about 10 years. And I said, there's a war that's been going on as long as I've been alive, and I've never heard about it? And then my mother said, and that's why your father is in Geneva. And I said, huh? You know, and she, and she explained that he was there negotiating, you know, an end to the war. Um, the next step, which is, which is sort of the family connection, is that in October 1954, my dad in the State Department drafted for President Eisenhower the letter of commitment by the United States to the people of South Vietnam. And I emphasize the people of South Vietnam, that they might have a chance to have their own nationalist society free from communist rule, just like the South Koreans and the West Germans. So when I was in, when I was in Harvard College, I volunteered for service um, because I felt this was a very just cause, and, and my dad had sort of been there in the beginning. Also, my dad, when he was Jack Kennedy's ambassador, had worked with the Thai government on stopping the insurgency in Thailand by decentralizing power down to the village communities. And this is the way you defeat insurgencies. So I had this in the back of my head when I volunteered. So I volunteered for USAID, not the military, with some a little bit of anxiety, you know, but I thought that if, if I could make a contribution to, to create a base of security across South Vietnam, that we would be able to win the war sooner and faster. So I had a year of language training and then three years in country with the CORDS, C-O-R-D-S, Civil Operations Rural Development Support Program. At the time, the head of CORDS, who was a deputy to Thomas McVie, the military commander, was uh, William Colby, uh, who was later head of the CIA. Um, and, then I, and then I went back to law school. The, the next step, I guess, is in 1980, Ellsworth Bunker, who, was our, who had been our ambassador in Saigon, asked me to help him write his memoirs of his service, his tenure as ambassador in Saigon, which was a story of success with the Vietnamization program and the Cords program and the South Vietnamese standing up to take over the defense of their country. Um, so I helped him with that. And in that process, by accident, in the State Department one day, 
I came across the secret files between Bunker and Henry Kissinger about the secret negotiations, files which to this day are not part of the State Department sort of normal historical record. Um, and in there, I found a cable from Kissinger to Bunker dated May 25, 1971, where if you read through Kissinger's opaque use of language, you saw that he was giving up the, the withdrawal of the North Vietnamese. He was leaving the North Vietnamese army in South Vietnam as of May 25, 1971. And to be frank, John, I smelled a rat. Um, and so after Bunker's book was not published, I, I went out to Minnesota to take a job as a law dean. He asked me to, to do my best to get his story before the public. So I've been trying to do that for a long time, and it paid off in the sense that in recent years, I was able to find other documents which indicate what Kissinger did in 1971. It's a fascinating story, Stephen, and it seems that this is this book is kind of a promise kept. Your career after 1971, when you left Vietnam, moved on, you went to law school, you became a dean at Hamlin in Minneapolis. Um, how long did it take you to put this book together? <laughs> That's uh, there's a saga there, John. Um, the 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 original manuscript was a first person manuscript for Ellsworth. His his wife and then his children didn't want that manuscript published uh, because they didn't want, I think, the, his wife, Carol Ellsworth's legacy to be too tied to Vietnam, which in 1980 was a lost war. And most of us Americans who were interested in getting ahead in life in the world, we turned our backs on it, which is why another thing, some of the lessons of Vietnam about cords we never applied in Iraq, and we never applied in Afghanistan. And I would argue that those are that's a reason why we did not do as well as we could have, because we didn't go learn the right lessons from the Vietnam War. But uh, so what I tried to do to keep my promise to Bunker was to give come up with various versions, a third-party version, a Steve Young version. But commercial presses were not interested because I had no name. It wasn't Bunker's name. It wasn't an academic book. Uh, university presses weren't interested. And, f and the whole mindset was really the anti-war movement, that the war had been a mistake, it was lost, let's move on. Um, but I felt that the facts that I had from Bunker and, and I was finding were so important for the American people that I just needed to persevere. And I'm just very grateful to Carl Cannon and Real Clear Publications for seeing uh, – I may be putting thoughts in their heads, but for seeing that, that this book is important for the American people and they're willing to stand up and publish it. Absolutely. And your, your point about turning our backs on Vietnam and not learning those lessons in Iraq and Afghanistan is a point well made. Though at the same time, I, I, re, I recall being a lieutenant at the basic school in the infantry officer course in 2009, 2010, around the time of President Obama's surge into southern and southwestern Afghanistan. I remember being issued a copy of Bing West's book, The Village, uh, a true story of 17 months in a Vietnamese village, a handful of Marines working together, living together with Vietnamese militia uh, to do 
counterinsurgency from the ground up. How much of that story rings true with your experience, Stephen, if you can speak oh, to 100%. it? One hundred percent. Actually, one of one of the um, the overlooked points, I think, by most people about the Vietnam War was the innovative reaction of the Marines in I Corps to end up with the cap, the cap program, combat action platoon or something like that. And I think it was General Walt. Was it General Walt? Lou Walt, the Marine commander. I'm blanking, guys. This is, this is, anyway, so as I remember, what happened was the Marines were sent early to Vietnam uh, to fight basically what we used to call the War of the Big Battalions against the North Vietnamese and, and the, the large Viet Cong units. What General Walt, I'm pretty sure it was Walt, so, but they were, they were put on static defense around the airbase in Da Nang and some other places. Now, my understanding is, and my uncle was a Marine in World War II, is that Marines are not constitutionally cut out for static defense. And, and so they wanted to take the action to where the problem was. The problem was that the communists would infiltrate into villages around the, the cities of Da Nang Way and the airbases and then, you know, lob mortars and things like that. It, so in order to defend the airbase, you actually had to go out and live with the people. What the Marines found with these small units, which was later picked up by MACV for the Army um, in, in terms of the MAT teams, um, is that you got intelligence from the people and the people, when they had some degree of protection, they were willing to stand up and defend themselves. If you abandon the people to the guerrillas, say the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, and, and or, or NVA units coming down from the hills, what is a sensible human being going to do? They're going to they're do whatever the people who show up at night with guns are going to tell them to do. But if you give them a chance to defend themselves and govern themselves for their own values, they will, they will probably stand up. And so I think the Marines in Vietnam, they never got enough credit for coming up with the insight, which ultimately through the courts program, which was started by Bob Comer uh, under the influence of Lyndon Johnson um, that, the, that the Marines deserved. So that's just a minor point of history. That's a great point of history. And indeed, I think Major General Walt at that point in time, 1967 into 68, was instrumental in implementing combat action platoon, combined action platoons rather, and combined action companies to bring about an integrated defense force uh, in, in which the local, it, the indigenous uh, military defended itself. That was a lesson the Marine Corps, at least I saw, tried to implement in Helmand Province, Afghanistan through Afghan local police, Afghan national police units. Um, and so perhaps in that regard, there was some institutional knowledge that passed down from Vietnam into Afghanistan. But the bigger point of your book is about a failure of policy and maybe strategy too. I want to start with the conventional wisdom on Vietnam. The conventional wisdom holds somewhere between the statement that America never could have won in Vietnam and that America lacked the will to win in Vietnam. But your book puts aside both of those statements and answers a different question, Stephen. Here's the question. Was South Vietnam defeated not because of its own shortcomings, but because it was betrayed by a secret deal made behind its back? Yes, it was betrayed. Tell me about that. So 1954, a little bit of history, John. 
1954, the French decide they can't continue. They don't want to continue prosecuting their war against the Viet Minh to maintain colonialism in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. In Vietnam, two states are created, North Vietnam for the communists, uh, South Vietnam for the nationalists. The model, I think, was South the Koreas and the Germanys after World War II. And the armistice agreement between the communists and the French said that neither zone, north or south, would be used for aggressive purposes uh, against the other zone. However, in 1959, the Communist Party in Hanoi at the Central Committee, they decide on a program of basically setting out to step-by-step conquer South Vietnam. Uh, This is implemented in 1960s. In 1960, the Politburo sends instructions to its cadres in the South to organize the Viet Cong, the NLF. Uh, In December 1960, as a result of that, the NLF is organized. They escalate. 1961, the, the, the South Vietnamese government, by the way, my dad was very frustrated because they had not really learned how to get out into the villages. Uh, dad, we were, dad was in Thailand at the time, and he would talk about that over the family, you know, dinner table. Um, but the Kennedy administration, John Kennedy, and particularly Robert Kennedy, his younger brother, uh, said we would stand by our commitment to South Vietnam, and we increased economic aid and sent military advisors. Uh, after the Xiem government ran into a lot of opposition and the military staged a coup and took over power, Hanoi sent more troops to the south. Hanoi escalated in, in early 64, uh, organizing larger local units as well. 65, General Westmoreland sends his famous uh, 44 battalion request, saying to President Johnson, you sent me here to defend South Vietnam. The communists have the military initiative. I need 44 battalions to stop them and buy time. It's an effect what Westmoreland said. Johnson sends the 44 battalions, and we are in the Vietnam War in a big way. Um, but what happens is in, in 1966, in the end of 66, Robert McNamara sends a memo to Johnson, and this is in the book, saying that he really doesn't know how to dissuade the North Vietnamese. He's not quite sure what to do. Johnson then turns to Walt Rostow and Bob Comer to come up with a new strategy. And that new strategy is Vietnamization. It's called Vietnamization under Nixon. It starts in, in early 67. And Bunker confirmed this. Bunker told me when I was working with him on the first draft of this book that I asked him, I said, Mr. Ambassador, why did Lyndon Johnson send you to Saigon? He laughed. He said, oh, Santo Domingo. And I sort of said, what? You know, Santo Domingo in the Caribbean? And then I began to remember, most people have forgotten. In 1965, the dictator, whose name I forget, in Santo Domingo was overthrown or collapsed or died or something. Castro tried to um, support a a movement in Santo Domingo to create a a left-wing state. Johnson sent 25,000 American forces to Santo Domingo, and that never happened. The left, Castro was defeated. But then how did Johnson get his forces out? Bunker was sent there to work for the Organization of American States. He arranged for the American forces to leave and elections held and, and the country has had not, has not experienced much turmoil since. Johnson had a private meeting with Bunker, February 1967, saying, I'm sending you to Vietnam to get us out of the war by turning the war over to the South Vietnamese. So really the, the, the history from 67 through the Tet Offensive down to 1972, 
was the story of Vietnamization or the American step-by-step turning the combat fighting and other things over to the South Vietnamese at the level of the big battalions. Now, at the level of the villages, there was the, the village development counterinsurgency program. We called it CORDS, which was on a parallel track at a different level. I would argue that by, by late 72, both efforts were successful. In 1972, the South Vietnamese held against North Vietnam's invasion. 13 divisions of Hanoi's regulars were sent to South Vietnam, and they could not defeat the South Vietnamese. By 1972, the South Vietnamese had defeated the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong, for all intents and purposes, had kind of evaporated. Now, none of this, of course, was covered really by the American press at the time. So the American people weren't so aware of it. But if that is the factual history, why did we sign a peace agreement that allowed Hanoi to keep its army inside South Vietnam to start the war a couple of years later? Now, what the documents that I have in my book seem to indicate, I think they do indicate, is that that policy was the decision of one man, Henry Kissinger, acting on his own authority without authorization from President Nixon. We also have in several documents, one, Dobrynin's cable to his, the Soviet ambassador Dobrynin, his cable to Moscow of his January 9, 1971 meeting with Kissinger. We have Kissinger's comment in his May 31 meeting with Sun Tui of the North Vietnamese. And we have Kissinger's comment to Zhou Enlai on July 9 and 10, 1971, that Hanoi, the United States would not object if a couple of years after the peace agreement, war broke out again. And this understanding, first of all, letting Hanoi keep its army in the south and communicating to the, to the Soviets, the Chinese communists, and the, and the North Vietnamese communists that a renewed war would be tolerated by the United States. That was never communicated to our ally, President Thieu, and the South Vietnamese people. And it was kind of, from my point of view, what the record indicates, this was sprung on President Nixon in, in October 1972, it was sprung on President Nixon and President Thieu in October 1972, when the political situation in the United States had given such power to the anti-war movement that Nixon was unable to undo the negotiating text that Kissinger had brought back from Paris. And so, therefore, we, we even after the, the Christmas bombing in 1972, Hanoi fudged a little bit on some terms but they left their army in the South. And, and that happened behind the backs of our president and our ally. And so are we talking about a peace agreement, Stephen, or, or a truce? Uh, there's, I, don't, I could look it up, but there's a poignant interchange between President Nixon and Kissinger I think it's on December 14th, 1972, when, when Nixon is instructed. And by the way, Al Haig at this point is, is with Nixon. Al Haig is upset with Kissinger for the, for letting the North Vietnamese army stay behind. But Al Haig did not write a, but he did not put this in his memoirs. Um, so there's a, there's, um, a pointed point where, where Nixon sort of looking at Kissinger, this, he's brought this treaty back that, Hanoi is caved that hasn't really caved at all. He says, 
this is not a peace agreement. This, this is an agreement for peace in North Vietnam and war and continued war in South Vietnam. And Kissinger says, yes, Mr. President. And then Nixon goes on to say, that's not what we want. We're the people who want peace for the South Vietnamese. These poor people have suffered for years and years and years. And we're the party that wants peace. So it's, it's very poignant. And so this is the, the year of the 50th anniversary of Henry Kissinger's Paris peace agreement. But Stephen, you're telling us what's called a peace agreement isn't a peace agreement. It was a, a truce or an agreement for perpetual war in South Vietnam and peace in North Vietnam. How do you describe it in your terms? Well, Kissinger had his own phrase. Um, John, you may remember uh, in 75, after the South was lost, there was a guy, Frank Snepp, who worked for the CIA in our embassy. He wrote a book called Decent Interval, that all our peace agreement did was give the South Vietnamese a decent interval. It saved the American face at the expense of the South Vietnamese. And, but at the time, I remember, and people were saying, Frank, you have no evidence. And, and Frank was pretty angry back then. Uh, but that was the phrase. I have found a document with Henry Kissinger's handwriting in the margin in his briefing book for his meetings with Zhou Enlai, the prime minister premier of communist China, in July 1971, where Kissinger writes in the left-hand margin, we want a decent interval. So maybe what we should call this is this is an agreement for a decent interval. And, and what's the what's the argument from Kissinger's perspective? I mean, is this basically he, that he wanted a, a peace agreement for domestic political reasons at at any cost and was basically willing to, you know, give up South Vietnam in exchange for a political win for for Nixon back home? That's that's I mean, that's probably the sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, I feel reluctant to answer it directly because I haven't I haven't seen Kissinger ever write in any way openly. This is what I wanted to do. This is why I did it. Uh, what we do have, I think, particularly in his memoirs, White House years, we have little clues. We have little comments here and there about his feelings about the South Vietnamese. One and two, his negotiating strategy. If we connect the dots we can we can come up with a hypothesis. The, hypo the first part of the hypothesis is Kissinger takes great pride in his negotiations of thinking up front what the ultimate outcome is going to be. In other words, prejudging history. And then in your negotiations, you move quickly to that result, sort of as fast as you can. So if you think you're going to lose in the end, you, you lose right up front. He also had a very interesting comment in, uh, I think Walter Russell Mead had a column of, of Kissinger had his new book called Leaders came out late, late last year. Walter Russell Mead had a comment in the Wall Street Journal where Kissinger says the, the, something to the effect that the mark of a great leader is someone who can take his people to a point they don't really want to go, that maybe they see is against their interest. But a great mind knows that that's the way history is going. So you take your people to that point. So that's his frame. That's sort of his negotiating framework. 
Then there are a number of points in, uh, in his memoirs and in his conversations with Nixon where he calls President Two at one point something like a psychotic son of a bitch. I mean, this is your ally. I mean, he also says, you know, Two can't, can't compromise with the communists because he's a, he basically, he does, he doesn't understand democracy. He just wants to be a military dictator or something. But Kissinger has these the very disparaging comments all about the South Vietnamese. So the hypothesis, hypothesis thought he goes with that point that was mentioned earlier. This war was unwinnable for the Americans. You know, the, our allies, the South Vietnamese, were basically losers. So let's let's get the heck out. But let's get the heck out in a way in line with Nixon's doctrine that will not be uh, embarrassing. So Kissinger, you peace with honor, peace with honor. Kissinger uses that phrase with with the Chinese in particular. We need an honorable exit. You guys can win in the end. Right. Just just give us, you know, give us an honorable ex, uh, exit. Um, the second thing, which which I think is very powerful and nobody has picked up on and very none of the scholars are journalists, is who who was Kissinger's mentor about the South Vietnamese, about the Vietnamese? Who had told him what the probabilities were? Who were the good guys? Who were the bad guys? And all this sort of stuff. Turns out there was one very specific individual who, who, if you know his history, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a giveaway. That man was a Frenchman. His name was Jean Santini. And he, and Kissinger mentions him in his memoirs as the person who taught him a lot about Vietnam. And he quotes Santini as basically saying, the only strong, viable Vietnamese are the communists. Those people in South Vietnam, the anti-communists, they're losers. They're corrupt. They're weak. They, they have no courage. They don't want to fight. They don't work hard. You know, they're just ugh, losing people. So who was Jean Santini? <laughs> no one's asked that question, right? If you have studied a little bit of Vietnamese history, you will recall that in March 6, 1946, it was Jean Santini who picked Ho Chi Minh to be the paramount leader of the Vietnamese. Kissinger's advisor on Vietnam was the Frenchman who had picked and staked his own reputation on Ho Chi Minh. Now, Santini loses his position in the French structure by the end of 46 and the war breaks out. But all his life, Santini uh, is, is, has special relationships with the communists in Hanoi which is why Kissinger used him several times as an intermediary, a private intermediary outside the U.S. diplomatic service to get messages to and from Hanoi. And, John, we have the document, I got a copy in the book, of the minutes of a meeting in the White House on March 25, 1971, with Santony and his wife, Kissinger, Winlord, Dick Smyser, and uh, uh, Al Haig. And Santini brings message back from Hanoi, something to the effect that if the Americans will, re will remove their army, uh, give a couple of NLF people uh, space in the National Assembly, Hanoi will return the POWs, return our POWs, sign a peace agreement, and let South Vietnam live for a couple of years. So we have to ask, why did Henry Kissinger listen to this Frenchman who created Ho Chi Minh, and not the CIA, not the DIA, not not the Vietnamese themselves. I mean, I mean, that's the question I think that this book leaves 
open to be answered. Well, let's pick up pick it up there, Stephen. The book is called Kissinger's Betrayal. Uh, you're a lawyer. Betrayal is not a tort, but still, that's a strong indictment. Tell us about the Henry Kissinger as he appears in your book. Who is he? Um, I had I had some decisions to make about how to write this book, given the documents and given to me the enormity of of what we're talking about here. The first war America's lost: fifty eight thousand Americans killed. So what I tried to do, and, and you mentioned John, I was a lawyer, is to use the, the, the concept from uh, tort law of res ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. You know, if I've got a club with blood on it and it's your blood, you know, on my club, I don't, you, know, you don't need a witness. You just get the club. It speaks for itself. So I tried to keep everything in the context of the documents and, and reporting. These are the documents. You, the reader, make up your own mind. These are quotes from Kissinger. These are quotes from Nixon. These are factual things that happened. These are the dates. I, I talk about Jean Santini and the French as sort of, it's, it's a history chapter. I talk about who the South, who the Vietnamese are, who the nationalists are. What are their values? Why did they oppose communism? But I tried to leave it up to the reader to process all this stuff and, and, you, the reader, you come to your own judgment. One of the reasons for that in recent years is the way we seem to be, we Americans, are overcome by narratives, and we're less and less interested in what the facts are. We're storytellers, and I don't want to be a storyteller. I want the facts to speak. And and if people read the book and they disagree with, with my feelings and my instincts, that's okay with me. I just want the facts out there. You read what Kissinger said, read what he wrote, read what Nixon did, read what happened. Um, this is what happened in, in 75 with the North Vietnamese, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I don't want to be in a position of uh, be an armchair psychologist. I do put one thing at the end because I, people I talked to about this, the first question is why? Why did he do this? And and there there's evidence in his writing and his character and in the way he he's very clever with manipulating words of a kind of um, a social a sociopath social you know sort of some kind of uh, sociopathological person who thinks he he can sort of outmaneuver he's smarter than everybody else very manipulative um, I think the facts tend to support something like that. For the listeners there, Stephen has refused to give us his closing argument here in this interview, so you'll just have to go and examine the evidence for yourself in the book. So I'll pivot, Stephen, and say, tell us what you can about the relationship between Henry Kissinger and President Richard Nixon. Um, okay, I'll share a story with you about myself and President Nixon, and that'll sort of contribute to this. Again, it's, let me just give you the facts and I may say a few other things. So when I, when I had that, that, found that cable from Kissinger to Bunker that said Kissinger had made his decision to leave Hanoi's army in the South in May 25, 1971. That's very early, right? And, and, and Kissinger in his memoirs sort of insinuates when he writes about this, this fact, he kind of insinuates that 
this was, you know, Nixon sort of was hovering over this. He also indicated in his cable that the president has decided not to, Bunker had, Kissinger had asked Bunker for a peace plan. Bunker comes up with a peace agreement, which is far superior than what Kissinger did. It was a step one, step two thing. Cable comes back to Bunker, which Bunker takes at face value, saying the president has decided. So my question was, did the president decide? So after I, 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 I cultivated Richard Nixon with an introduction from Ellsworth Bunker. It took, it took a number of years. It was a very interesting experience. This was in the 1980s when Nixon was retired. He was in disgrace. Uh, he was a very lonely man. And late in the 1980s, I went to see him at his new presidential office in, in New Jersey, I think Saddlebrook, New Jersey. And I sort of said, I felt, you know, I, I built it. We were, I put two letters from Nixon about to me in the book. So there's some evidence that the guy, you know, thought I was reasonably credible. Um, so I said, now I'm going to ask him. So I, I asked him, I said, Mr. President, can, can I ask you a question? He said, oh, sure, Steve, anything. I said, well, I'd like to ask you about Vietnam. He kind of looks, huh? And I said, do you have any memory, any recollection, sir, of Henry coming to you with Ellsworth's uh, negotiating proposal of one step and two steps? And Nixon's kind of looking like, and I, the sense I get from the body language is he, there's, there's no memory here. So then he comes back to me. He's a very, I mean, I was very, I was very impressed with him. He's a very smart man. I mean, he had a, first-class brain uh, on maybe left brain, some emotional issues, of course. Um, he then turns to me and he says, ah, Steve, what difference would it have made? And then I said, okay, this is the Rubicon. I got a cross. So I said, well, Mr. President, if Henry had presented that to you, you would have had to choose between Ellsworth's recommendation that Hanoi's troops leave and Henry's recommendations that Hanoi's troops stay in the South. And Nixon went white. His face just went white. It, his skin became sort of waxen. He had trouble sort of, he was, I mean, he's processing something obviously deeply emotional. Uh, he was fidgeting in his chair, most uncomfortable. I felt sorry for the man. Um, and then he turns his head looks to his his right at the wall for probably a nanosecond, but it felt a long time. Then he recomposes himself, you know, the face, the body, gets his calm back, turns back to me and changes the subject. And I had a thought that what I had just done was tell a president of the United States that he had been betrayed by his national security advisor who had not been forthcoming and honest with him on the disposition of military forces, which was life or death to South Vietnam. And he had not been given a proper opportunity to make that decision in an early enough time. So that's, that was my experience, John, which colors my thinking of both Nixon and Kissinger. Then if you read, all the conversations which were taped between Kissinger and Nixon, and you have the documents in the background, what you will see is Kissinger never really fully disclosing things to Nixon. 
I would even argue maybe as a hypothetical because I you know that Kissinger was so he he was playing Nixon, and Nixon really wasn't aware of it. And and it's it's I mean there's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy in this. Certainly an ethical problem you're raising, and we're talking about. Ellsworth Bunker, who was U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam. We're talking about National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger. Stephen, I have to imagine you're so fixated on this moment and you researched it so closely that you can probably almost imagine yourself in the group of counselors, in the group of advisors to President Nixon at this time, uh, preparing for a decision. If you could have been there, what would you have said or done? That's tough because there were there were two people apparently we know who in late seventy two uh, saw the danger and warned against it. One was Alexander Haig, as I mentioned, General Haig. The other was a younger guy, a deputy to Henry Kissinger, John Negroponte. Negroponte objected, and Kissinger uh, wrote about this in his memoirs. He, he know that Negroponte objected. Um, Neither, neither of these two men, and they're both very, very capable. I mean, Alexander Haig became Secretary of State. John Negroponte was the Director of National Intelligence. But at, at the younger point in this career, in seven, both their careers, 72, they didn't seem to be able to come up with the arguments or the words or whatever to stop this. Now, what may be going on, and there's, there's, there's evidence for this, because Haig and Kissinger are telling Till in Saigon, you have to go along with this bad deal because if you don't, the Democrats in Congress are going to cut you off and you're going to lose anyway. And there's conversations between Nixon and Kissinger that Nixon feels under that same pressure. So it might have been that once the terms of Kissinger's deal were disclosed to the public by Hanoi, <coughs> just before the presidential election in 72, the political power of the anti-war movement in America was such that we had to accept the deal of leaving the South Vietnamese, of the North Vietnamese army inside South Vietnam. So the question then becomes 1971. If, if, and, and this was an awkward moment, frankly, John, between myself and, and Ambassador Bunker, because when I saw this cable in retrospect, 1980, we've lost the war. Hanoi's army was in there. They launched an offensive. We didn't aid the Vietnam, South Vietnamese very much. They, they knew, knowing that they were abandoned, they just said, you know, that's it. Just like, just like the, the, the Afghans when we abandoned them. And what are you going to do? You know, suicide? Um, Bunker had not seen it because Bunker could, because at the time, oh, there's, there's more documentation. Uh, before Kissinger meets with the North, the North, North Vietnamese, he sends Bunker, uh, an outline of the points he's going to make. After the meetings, he sends Bunker a summary of the meetings. Bunker then briefs President Thieu of South Vietnam, who's sworn to secrecy. He cannot tell any other South Vietnamese about this. Uh, and then Bunker sends a cable back to Kissinger, as I remember twice, reporting to Kissinger what he's told uh, President Thieu. And he tells President Thieu, I think twice, at least once, that the, the, the proposals made in May 31, 1971, are in the context of President Nixon's speech of October 1970, where Nixon calls for mutual withdrawal. Nixon says the North Vietnamese troops have to leave. 
Bunker has no no inkling that Kissinger is not following Nixon's position. So Bunker doesn't raise an objection to the May 25 cable. It seems to me that was the point, that if Bunker had realized that, and just in his very graceful, you know, New England uh, gentlemanly manner, asked for a clarification. You know, uh, he wasn't on a Dear Henry basis, but just say, you know, it seems that in your phrasing here, the peoples of Indochina will discuss this among themselves. We are no longer asking for the withdrawal of, of Hanoi's troops. Is that correct? If Bunker had raised that at that time, it would have escalated up somehow. It would have gone over to, to uh, General Abrams. It would have, you know, members of, other members of the National Security Council, maybe even Nixon himself. So my thought is, if it had been raised in 71, around April or May, that that point when Kissinger puts the offer on the table, it might have been uh, stopped. And so let me try to put my hands on two different places in history. In December of 1972, when Nixon comes to realize that we've effectively let the communists keep their divisions in Laos and South Vietnam after America withdraws. And then my other hand in 2021, as America withdraws from Afghanistan, the country you mentioned just a few minutes ago, I noted in 2019, you started writing about the similarity in the position of the North Vietnamese and the Taliban. What were your thoughts, Stephen, watching negotiations unfold with the Taliban in light of all the deep research you put into 1971, 72? And what were your thoughts watching America's withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021? So my thoughts, when I first saw the framework of Khalizad's structure, I frankly said, and you could imagine the language, uh, here we go again, same damn thing. You know, we're negotiating with the enemies of our allies behind the backs of our allies. Uh, and I had, a, I had a premonition that it was going to end in disaster. And so when it actually ended in disaster, I was, I was just, I don't know what I was. I, I, was, I felt hopeless, I mean, for the country. We'll finish with you. You served in Vietnam from 1968 until 1971 for USAID. You served in village development. You served in counterinsurgency in a way, very similar to how we fought in Afghanistan. What for you stands out about those experiences so many years later, Stephen? Um, maybe two things, John. We had so many good Americans, military and civilian, serving, caring about a little people living on the other side of the world. I'm sorry, guys. And the second thing is, there were so many good South Vietnamese. Colonel Nghia, Professor Wee. Now, part of the knock on me is that, um, I mean, my wife's Vietnamese. So part of the knock is that I'm too emotionally involved. 
with the guys with the side that lost the war. And that's true. But they were, I mean, they were good people with good values. They sacrificed. They took, they took tremendous casualties. Um, and we just walked away. Oh, the other maybe, I mean, this is sort of, I don't know. It was sort of, um, brings back April 75. So, um, I was a young lawyer. We were working on a house in, uh, in Brooklyn. And when I heard on the radio that Da Nang was lost, which meant General Ngo Quang Trung, who was probably the only Southern general who could have rallied the troops at the last moment and stood off uh, Hanoi, uh, he'd, he'd been undercut um, by Thiel. Um, I said, that's it. And then my next thought was refugees. Um, we have there. You know, lots of Vietnamese who are going to suffer under the communists. So I didn't go to I didn't go to the Wall Street law firm on Monday morning. I went to Washington D.C. to meet with some friends, uh, one of whom was uh, assistant to uh, then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. And I said, "Guys, we got to have a refugee movement." And the young guys, Kissinger didn't care. Uh, Ford really didn't care. Um, our now President Joe Biden at the time said something like, we, we won't take one South Vietnamese. I think it was George Packer. That's in the book, too. He wrote that up for the Atlantic magazine. Um, but the young guys, they, they got a refugee program started. And so we at least had the honor of, of not abandoning everybody. We abandoned, the, we abandoned the Cambodians. I once was told later, I was told we took out maybe 37 families. We left the rest to the Khmer Rouge. Um, and then, and then we had a second phase of, of Citizens Commission on Indo-Chinese Refugees, which got the uh, the 1980 Refugee Act passed, which meant the boat people we could bring in the boat people, we could bring the Hmong from Laos who had been left to camps in Thailand, we could bring out um, other Vietnamese miners, General John Vesey, miners, uh, and and the survivor or the graduates of the concentration camps. Um, and the Khmer, the survivors of the killing fields. So that was that was also, John, very much in my mind. Is I mean, and I remember at the time in April, this thought that we Americans in our national security apparatus, we are so good at sort of plans and contingency planning and thinking things through. We have no plan, no operational manual on how to lose a war. And I would say we saw that again in Afghanistan. Chaos, uh, indecision, just don't know how to do it. Um, and I, and in 75, I could understand it. I mean, we'd never lost a war, this thing. <laughs> this wasn't supposed to happen to us Americans, but it did. Um, the other thing, about going back to your point about Afghanistan, I did have a thought at the time is, oh, I had fr- friends of mine uh, who had been involved in the refugee effort in 75 were trying to get in touch with the State Department and the Defense Department in 2021 to give their advice as to how to organize a refugee movement. And nobody would return their phone calls. We'll leave it there. The book is Kissinger's Betrayal, How America Lost the Vietnam War. Stephen B. Young, thank you for joining us. Thank you, John. 
And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.